Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And welcome. We are continuing with the story of the Akeda, and we're up to Pasuk Dalad. So the story so far is Hashem has told Abraham to go to the land of Maria and to raise up, to bring up Yitzchak on one of the mountains that Asher Omar Elecha, which I will say to you. Um, I have stressed, and I apologize for stressing this over and over again, but I happen to think it's a real theme of Rashi in this parak that Hashem has given um, Abraham time to think. It's been very important that he hasn't rushed him into this. Uh, and I think the reason for that is because the whole nature of the test and the uniqueness of the test is it's something that however much Abraham thinks about it, he can't understand how it can make sense. Uh, and I think, and I think Rashi is saying, but that really is the essence of the test. And I think that comes across in the next passage that we're going to read. So Pasuk Dalad says, uh, in fact, let's just look at Pasuk Gimel, um, because it leads into Pasuk Dalad. Pasuk Gimel says, Vyashkem Abraham Babokia. Abraham got up early in the morning, Vyachabos, Yachabosh, um, et Chamoro, and he uh, saddled his donkey, Vyachachet Shnei Arabito, and he took his two lads with him. Rashi had a lot to say on, the, on each phrase there that we talked about last week. And Yitzchak, his son, and he chopped wood. For the Ola, for the burnt offering, and he got up, and he went to the place which Hashem had said to him. And then we read in Pasuk Dalad, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. So, uh, I just want to very quickly look at the second Rashi on this Pasuk, because we'll just uh, come back to it. Bayaratamakom says Rashi Ra Anan Kashur Al Hahar. So we'll come back to that. But the point that I want to make is that Rashi is saying when he saw the place, he saw the mountain. In other words, when it said that he um, went in Pasuk Gimel to the place El Hamakom, and then in Pasuk Dalad, Bayaratamakom Mirachok, there are two places. What's the place in Pasuk Gimel and the place in Pasuk Dalad? So Rashi says the place in Pasuk Dalad is the mountain, which means the place in Pasuk Gimel is Eretz Hamaria. Because in Pasuk Bet, Hashem said, you go to Eretz Hamaria, and then you go up one of the mountains, which I will show you. So given that we've got two places in Pasuk Bet, the Eretz Hamaria and the mountain, and we've got a place in Pasuk Gimel and a place in Pasuk Dalad, Rashi understands the place in Pasuk Dalad to be the mountain, which means the place in Pasuk Gimel was Eretz Hamaria. The Ramban learns differently, but I'll just mention that as an aside. Now, let's get back to the beginning of Pasuk Dalad. So, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. Says Rashi on the words, Why did he delay from showing him immediately. So there's too many pronouns as usual. What it means is why did Hashem delay from showing Abraham immediately? What did he not show him? He didn't show him the mountain. That was what was missing. He, um, I, I have to say, I always used to read this Rashi wrongly. I always used to read that the problem was, the, the question of Rashi is why did it take him three days to get 
from A to B. And we know where A was and we know where B was. A was Hebron and B was Eretz Hamaria, which is Yerushalayim. And we know how far away they are. They're not very far. Even if you're going with a donkey, it's not a three-day journey. I used to think that that was Rashi's problem. Why is it taking three days to get from Hebron to Eretz Hamaria? I don't think that is Rashi's problem at all. And by the way, it makes more sense for it not to be Rashi's problem because Rashi doesn't really relate to the actual geography of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, and I hope this is not uh, heretical to say Rashi didn't know the geography of Eretz Yisrael. It's interesting when Rashi does talk about the geography of Eretz Yisrael, it's always based on Pesukim or occasionally what Chazal say, which is, because he's a from Jew, his sources. He doesn't go to Wikipedia. He doesn't go to an atlas. He goes to the sources, i.e. Tanakh and Chazal. And if he has a point to make now, what's north of where and what's south of where, he will quote Pesukim to back up his story. In contrast to the Ramban, who wrote his parish on the Chumash while he was living in Eretz Yisrael. And there's a few places where the Ramban says, this particular place, and I've seen it. And he's talking from personal experience. And he might say, I don't know if he ever does, to be honest, but he might say that it's more than a three-day journey or less than a three-day journey from A to B. That's not Rashi's style. So what actually is Rashi's problem? The point is, he's already got to Eretz Hamaria because he got there in Pasuk Gimel. He went to the place which we've established as Eretz Hamaria, which means, therefore, what happened? What, what does it mean on the third day? It means on the third day after he got to Eretz Hamaria. So he gets to Eretz Hamaria, which is quite quick from Hebron, we know, even if Rashi doesn't. Um, and then he wanders round and round for three days until Hashem tells him which mountain. And now Rashi's words make perfect sense. Lama echar milaharoto miyad. Why did Hashem delay from showing him or teaching him immediately what was the mountain? Why did he make him hang around for three days going nowhere? And now comes the answer. Kedei shalo yomru. So they should not say, Hamamo, you confused him, Ve'irvavo pitom, and you muddled him up immediately, V'taraf dato, and you literally tore his mind and made him all confused. Ve'ilu hayalo shahut, and this is again what people would say had Hashem not given him the delay. They would say, if he had had the time for delay, lehimaleich, to change his mind, alibo, to his heart, lo haya oser, he would not have done this. In other words, there's too many sort of uh, hypothetical negatives here. If Hashem had not given him the delay, then people would have said, you told him all the instructions suddenly and you confused him. And that's why he followed your instruction to sacrifice his son. But now that Hashem has delayed the process and given him three days to do nothing but think, that objection cannot be raised. And it's interesting but this is exactly what Rashi's already said in Pasuk Bet, almost the same words. When in Pasuk Bet, he said, your son, your only son whom you love, Yitzchak, why did all this spiel, why so many words? Rashi said, this is on Pasuk Bet, why did Hashem not reveal to him immediately exactly the nature of, of, of whom uh, he was supposed to take as a sacrifice? So that he shouldn't get confused and uh, other word for confused, basically. So again, uh, we see very clearly over and over again in Rashi that a crucial part of the test is that Abraham has time to reflect and time to say no. 
but he doesn't say no. And that's how he passes the test. Okay, that's Rashi on Biyom HaShlishi. Now let's go back to what we saw very briefly before. Vayar et hamakom. Says Rashi, ra'ah anan kashur al hahar. He saw a cloud attached on the mountain. Why does Rashi have to say this? Because there is a problem here. Given that we've said, this is Rashi's opinion, that he goes to Samaria, and then the original instruction was that he should go uh, take up Yitzchak alachad peharim asher omar elecha on one of the mountains, which I will say to you. But when it comes to identifying the mountain, he saw the place from afar. Where is Hashem saying that this is the mountain in question? That's what's missing. Hashem said he was going to say, but apparently he doesn't say. And on the contrary, all Abraham has to do is see. So Rashi has to say that Abraham saw a sign. And the sign was Hashem's way of saying what the mountain was. So what was the sign? What did he lift up his eyes and see? Says Rashi, quoting the Midrash, he saw a cloud attached to the mountain. And that was the Hashem's way of saying that this is the place. Now, of course, the cloud reminds us of the cloud over the uh, Ohamoed, the Mishkan, um, which, of course, then sort of evolves into the Bet Mikdash, which is where? On this very spot. So it's not just any old cloud. It's like the cloud that later on becomes the cloud of the Mishkan. Sarah, do you want to say something? I guess I'm just wondering if there's sort of um, precedent for quoting this, like for having a vision as an equivalent for Omar Elecha. Like, uh, I understand how it communicates, like that message, but it's not specifically speaking. Are you challenging it? So you you say <laughs> it's not. No, I'm sorry. just wondering. Yeah. Uh, do we see Hashem speaking through a vision? Um, I'm tempted to say I'm sure we must, but I can't think of one right now. Uh, a precedent beforehand, uh, if you're taking the word precedent literally, there hasn't been many yeah. examples of him speaking beforehand, but maybe afterwards, I'm sure we can think of examples where Hashem speaks through a vision. He speaks right. to the VM all the time through a vision. Right. Is it considered like Spake, like saying? Yeah. I don't know. Okay. But I'm sure that's what Rashi's saying here. Okay. okay. By the way, the, the I just mentioned because Rashi doesn't, the Midrash goes on uh, rather beautifully and sort of challengingly, and Rashi doesn't bring this um, to say Yitzchak and Abraham saw the vision, but the two lads whom last week we identified as Eliezer and Yishmael didn't see it at all. They it says in the Midrash, they saw nothing but the desert. Uh, and it's a beautiful idea and like, easy to make a sermon out of. Yeah, clouds on top of mountains is not so uncommon, but to understand the message of the cloud, that you need to be an Abraham or a Yitzchak. Okay, we move on to Pasuk Arab. Abraham said to his lads, stay, you, you, you stay here with the donkey. By the way, that Midrash, which Rashi doesn't quote, but I will, says as a consequence of the two lads, Yishmael and Eliezer, not seeing the vision of the cloud, Abraham then says, you stay with the donkey. And the Midrash says, Am you people who are like a donkey, because you don't have the vision that donkeys don't have, but we, Abraham and Yitzhak, do. Anyway, Rashi doesn't say that. So let's get back to Rashi. So, po reside here with the donkey. 
Adko. And I and the lad, we will go up to Ko, which I'll translate in a sort of uh, uh, highfalutin way as yonder. We will prostrate. And we will return to you. So Rashi is interested in the words Adko. And he says, Kulomar, Derech Mu'at. It's a short way, Lamakom Asher Lefaneno, to the place which is in front of us. Now, what is, and then he says, Umidrash Akada, and there's a Midrashic explanation, but we'll come to that in a minute. What is Rashi's problem? The problem is the word Ko. So I saw two ways of understanding the problem. Uh, and the first is that Ko actually means here. And it's very hard to say, we will go up to here, because if you're here already, you're not going anywhere. You can't go here, you go there. The word would have been sham. We will go there. So what does it mean, we'll go here? So Rashi answers that by saying, derech mu'at, it's just a short way. It's just a little bit away from where we are now. And he says that derech mu'at lamakom So It's just a short way to the place which is in front of us. So that's how ko, meaning here, can also mean the destination of where they're going. The other point I saw about ko, is that it implies something that you can point to, like ko, this thing here. So as if Abraham is pointing, now you can only point to a place which is nearby. You can't point to a place which is too far away because you won't be able to focus on the place. So if it's somewhere you can point to, it's gonna be derech mu'at. Now, either way, it's a bit clumsy because we still go back to the problem. The ko basically means here um, and it doesn't mean there. And it's uncomfortable to say that we will go to here which perhaps is why Rashi brings another explanation. Umidrash Agada says, uh, uh, the Midrash relates, I will see where is that thing which Hamakom, meaning God, said to me with the words, Ko so will be your descendants. So in Perak Tetvav, Pasakhei, Hashem said, you look at the try and count the stars, you won't be able to. So will be your descendants. In other words, you will have lots and lots of descendants. But there's a slight problem with that at the moment because he's about to kill the only descendant he's got, at least who's going to carry on his line and who hasn't yet had children. So how's it going to be that the words are fulfilled? So the Midrash says, uh, sorry, uh, we're going to go to understand what was meant by the ko. So that's the Midrashic explanation. It's clearly not the Pshat, but the Pshat, it doesn't really quite work satisfactorily because of the problem I said before about ko meaning here. So that's why we have the Midrash. But what else do we notice? Yet again, Rashi is saying that Abraham is perplexed. Twice he said that Abraham uh, needs time to think about it. And this time, and we're gonna see other examples, Abraham does think about it, and he is bothered. And again, I say, and I, I sort of apologize for repeating this over and over again, but I think it's so important that it's not that Abraham followed blindly. He, he followed, but with tremendous questions. And the fact that he acted even without answers to the questions, that's the test. That, I believe, is why Rashi said in Pasuk Aleph that um, Hashem wants him to stay in uh, stand in this test um because if you don't then sorry it's possible if you don't then people will say the original tests counted for nothing 
And uh, how can it be that the previous nine tests are so insignificant that this one is so different? It is different because this is the one that goes against his intellect and his understanding of everything that he's learned up till now to be able to, to be told to kill his son. The one who's going to be the ancestor of his, his, uh, of his descendants is the one that doesn't make sense. And that's the nature of the test. Okay, then Abraham says something odd. He says, Vanashuva, we will return. Why is that odd? Because according to Abraham's understanding of what's going to happen, only one of them is going to return. Just by the way, before we see Rashi's answer to the question, um, I'm always conscious of the fact that in Pasuk Yutet, we have precisely the reverse problem. Because in Pasuk Yutet, the story is basically over. Yitzchak is not slaughtered. And then we read, Vayashav Abraham el Na'arav. Abraham returns. What's the problem? Why, why do I say it's the reverse? Because there it should be plural and it's singular. Here, before the event, Abraham says, we will return in the plural and it should be singular. Did I say that right? In Yutet, it's singular when it should be plural. And in Hey, it's plural when it should be singular. Anyway, how does Rashi understand the Nashuva? The problem being, Abraham says we're going to return when his plan is only one of us will return. Says Rashi, He prophesied that the two of them would return. And I think it only makes sense if Rashi is saying he prophesied and did not know what he was prophesying. As we see from time to time, people have prophecy thrown into them, nizrak uh, into them. Or we have this idea of people speaking prophetically, but without realizing what they're saying. And I say that has to be the case, because if Abraham was aware of what he was prophesying, then the test is all gone. Then if he knows that Yitzhak's going to come back, then there's no test anymore. So I think Rashi is saying that he was speaking prophetically, i.e. in a way that he didn't understand what he was saying, or if you like, perhaps didn't mean to say this. His own uh, uh, cognitive intellect would have said, I will return. But in a prophetic way, he said, we will return without understanding. Now we move on to Pasuk Vav. And it says, Vayikach Abraham et ha'ola. Abraham took the wood for the, well, I keep translating it as burnt offering, but as we all know, that's actually the, the word that Abraham misunderstands. It originally means something that goes up um, because a burnt offering does. But let's translate, we'll leave it as burnt offering because that's how we usually translate that word, even though we're aware of the ambiguity. Anyway, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, the Yasem al Yitzchak, and he put it on Yitzchak, but no, his son. And he took in his hand the fire, the et ha'ma'achelet, which I'll leave untranslated, and the two of them went together. And I left the word hamachelet untranslated because Rashi is going to translate it for us with the word sakin. It means knife. Now, um, why does Rashi have to say this? Because it's a word that's not unique. It does occur elsewhere just a few times in the Tanakh. Um, and it's pretty obvious it means some sort of knife. But nevertheless, it's a word that is not the common word. Um, and you can always ask if it meant knife, why didn't it say knife? What is the significance of ma'achelet? So having said it means sakim, Rashi has to explain exactly how the word, if you like, works. How does it mean sakim? Says Rashi, al sha'ochelet et because it eats the flesh. Kamadatema, like we see in Devarim Lamadbet, in the tochacha, the charbi tochal basar. My sword will eat 
flesh. Now, what does it mean, eat, in this sense? It doesn't mean eat, like put it in your mouth and chew it and put it into your digestive system. It means destroy. A sword will destroy the flesh. The knife will destroy the flesh by cutting into it. So that's why it's a machelet, because it's ochel. Ochel, as in not eating up, but consuming, finishing up, destroying. And then Rashi says, and it renders kosher fit the, the meat for eating. So this is a different understanding of ochel. The first understanding was ochel as in destroy, as in consume, as in finish up. The second understanding of ochel is it the knife makes the food ready for achila. That means for us to eat, for us to put in our mouths and put in our digestive system. Um, and that perhaps is why it's in the hifil, ma'achelet. It causes it to be eaten. And that's probably why Rashi needs to bring two explanations. He doesn't really say there's two explanations. Um, he just says it's sakin ashem sha'achelet abasar. Then he brings a pasuk to back that up. And it renders the food ready or fit for eating. So it's two different types of eating. And the knife performs two different roles corresponding to the two understandings of eating. So why do we need two? Well, one, because of the uh, comparing it to the Vacharbi Tochal Basar. It's got the same sense as the sword eats the flesh. But because it's hifl, so it makes it eating. And that's why Rashi brings the second point, Shemachsheret Basala Achila. But in a sense, um, they're both a bit lacking. Uh, and in particular, um, sorry, well, the second one certainly is lacking. And I'll tell you why. Because you don't just need a knife to render food ready for eating. Uh, in terms of shechita, if that's what it's talking about, that you kill an animal in order to make it edible, um, you don't need a knife. You can do it with a stone. You can do it with a, uh, a shard. Uh, we, we, we are not accustomed to do so. Uh, fortunately, our shochtim all do, do use knives, but they don't have to. And there are other things which are machsheret basar la achila. And that perhaps is why Rashi brings another explanation. Um, and he says, Zot nikret ma'achelet al shem she Yisrael ochlim matan sachara. This is called ma'achelet because the Jewish people eat ochlim, the benefit of the, the giving of the reward, of its reward. We are still eating as it were, benefiting from the act that Abraham, our ancestor, did on that occasion. I saw a nice explanation. I don't think it's, you have to say this, but uh, why, why do we say achila, dafka? Because the, every time that we eat, we put food on our table, um, what we do is we elevate that food into a sacrifice and we get the schar just from the mundane matter, the, the animalistic at, uh, um, uh, action of eating food the way we do it, because we elevate our food, we say a bracha before, we say a bracha afterwards, we make it kosher, we treat our table like an altar. In that way, we are still eating the reward as we eat. Um, I think that's, uh, uh, I don't mean that's exactly in Rashi, but it's a, it, it's a nice idea. But so Rashi says, ma'achelet is something that causes us to eat, and it causes us to eat the benefit of the act. So two explanations of Rashi. One, it's something to do with chopping up the animal, we, and that comes into two forms, killing the, uh, the uh, eating up the animal and making the animal ready for eating. 
but uh, since it doesn't quite fit both the grammar and the meaning of the word, we need the second explanation, which is al shem shi Yisrael ochlem matan sachara. The Jewish people continue to eat the reward from that act. And then we have perhaps the most beautiful phrase in this challenging story, ve'yalchu shnehem yachdav. The two of them went together. And it's worth noting that we have this in Pasuk Vav, and we also have it in Pasuk Chet. And in between the two, we have the dialogue between Yitzchak and Abraham. Uh, so Rashi will talk about both of them in their context, but let's see what he says on the first. The two of them went together. Abraham, Abraham, who knew that he was going to slaughter his son, he was going with will and joy. Harsh thing to say, very challenging for us to understand, but Abraham was fulfilling a mitzvah, and that's why he had simcha. Just like Yitzchak, who did not feel the thing. In other words, Yitzchak is like the, uh, the reference point in this. The two of them went together. Abraham went in the same way as Yitzchak. Why, where was Yitzchak going? Yitzchak was going to do a mitzvah to perform a sacrifice. He, at this point, didn't realize what the sacrifice was going to be. So he had Rotson and Simcha. And the two of them are going together. So Abraham also had Rotson and Simcha. And why does Rashi say this? Because I, I think you could say the whole, past, the whole three words are superfluous, or certainly one of them is superfluous. Maybe you could say, we know they're going up the mountain together, so we don't need to be told they went together. But if you do need to be told they went, the two of them went, you don't need to be told the two of them went together. Because if the two of them are going, obviously they're together. So the word yachtav, or maybe the word shnehem, is superfluous. So Rashi explains that it's teaching you the congruence, the identity of the two of them together. That just as one had Rotson and Simcha, so the other had Rotson and Simcha. And now we come to Pasuk Zion. Rob, the most uh, emotionally sorry. charged. Can, can yes, I interrupt if I may? Sorry. I'm just wondering on the word, um, it took the fire. Is that, it may be a simple question, is that just referring to like a fire starter? And is that different to the wood? I mean, it makes reference to the wood for some reason. I know Rashi spoke before about saddling his donkey and doing it like to show that he had joy. But with the wood, it was, Rashi gave it last week an example about splitting it and just describe what that word means, which Vayivakar, I think, yeah. um, which was different. But I'm wondering if what the word in English kind of, he took the fire, which we wouldn't really say, is that yeah, just kind good of meaning a fire right. starter? Good question. Um, I've seen it translated as kindling. Like yeah. the matches, I, I, uh -huh. um, I, I, I'm not sure what the, to be honest, because pre-matches, I don't know how you lit a fire. And I was never a Boy Scout. Um, I don't know exactly the difference between kindling and wood. Maybe kindling is, is wood that's very easy to ignite as opposed to the, the main bulk of the, the burning wood. But um, yeah, it, it, uh, it's obviously not a flame. It's something mm -hmm. that will ignite a flame. Thank you. Can't be more specific, I'm afraid. Okay. Pasuk Zion. Uh, I want to preface this, and this isn't related to Rashi, but it's uh, a point that uh, I, I often make, that Abraham and Yitzchak overlapped their lives for 75 years. Abraham uh, was 100 when Yitzchak was born. Abraham was, died 75 years later. Um, and in those 75 years, they must have had many, many, many conversations. And I, as a parent and as an educator, would love to know what the first Jew said to the second Jew and how he conveyed what it is to be Jewish. 
And of all those conversations that must have happened, the Torah gives us one and one only. And it's the next two psukim. And that's it. It's a question and an answer. And bearing that in mind, let's see the question. Let's see the answer. Zion, on which there's no Rashi. Yitzchak said to Abraham, his father, and he said, Avi, my father. Just by the way, this isn't Rashi, but I just can't avoid saying this. I heard from Avriskin um, that normally Vayomer introduces a new part of the conversation. Um, Hebrew, classical Hebrew doesn't have inverted commas to tell us who, when the speech starts and ends. It, it stops when the next person starts. So Vayomer A will be followed by Vayomer person B and then Vayomer person A again. Here we have two Vayomers from the same person, from Yitzchak. It sounds like he's trying to get the words out, but he can't. He says something, but he can't even say anything. That, that's Vayomer Yitzchak al-Abraham Aviv. Nothing comes out. Vayomer, then he tries again, and he says, Avi. Okay, Vayomer, and he said, so although it doesn't say, this must be Abraham responding, Hineini, here I am. Remember, Abraham, when he was first approached by Akadosh Baruch Hu in Pasuk Aleph, uh, so Abraham said, here I am to Hashem. And he also says, here I am to his son. Um, and really, the whole story of the Akedah is the tension between those two responsibilities that Abraham has. He has a responsibility to Akadosh Baruch Hu, but he also has a responsibility as a father. And how is he going to balance that tension? Um, in my opinion, he, he doesn't really. He opts for one rather than the other. But part of the challenge is he has that same Hineini relationship with his son. So Yitzchak asks the question, well, Yitzchak says, hello, Avi. And uh, Abraham replies, Hineini Benini. And then here comes the question. Vayomer, he said, so again, it must be Yitzchak, although it doesn't spell it out. Hinei ha'esh v'ha'etzim. Here is the fire, which I will better translate as the kindling and the wood. And where is the lamb for the burnt offering? To which comes the reply. Abraham. Abraham said, Elohim lo Hashem will show for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then it says, The same phrase as we had in Pasukvah. So what's Rashi said about this phrase? Yireh lo haser la'ola bani. Says Rashi, Yireh lo haser kulamar. That is to say, Yireh, he will see. Vayivchar lo, and he will choose for himself, haser, the lamb. Ve'im einser la'ola, and if there is no lamb for the burnt offering, bani, my son. And uh, my text of Rashi here, which is punctuated, has a comma after the word la'ola. And Rashi is reading the Pasuk as if there's a comma after the word la'ola. Interestingly, in terms of the trop, the, uh, the notes, la'ola has a tibcha uh, and b'ni has an esnachta. And there's a small level comma between the two. Emercha, tibcha, esnachta is like a single phrase, but there is a little bit of a comma. In Hebrew, because of the, the notes, we have different levels of comma. We have about five different levels of comma. Um, so there's a, a little break between la'ola and b'ni, which would fit with the way Rashi reads it. Yireh lo hasel la'ola or b'ni. Now, 
Um, there's a lot to say on this, uh, but the simple thing to say is that the word Bani is superfluous. Um, there's nobody else that Abraham is talking to. Um, now we know, and we can see sort of stylistically, Yitzchak says Avi, and Abraham replies Bani, and he says again in Pasuket Bani, but in Rashi's very meticulous um, analyzing whether the word is necessary or the word is there to tell us something else, that Bani in Pasuket falls into the latter category. It's not necessary. It tells us something else. And what does it tell us? But that's the option of the, uh, of the ser. So either we're going to get a ser or Bani, it's going to be my son. Now, interestingly, um, the question is asked, and I haven't got a really good answer, is why Abraham phrases it in this um, either or, this, this doubtful situation. Maybe we'll get a ser or maybe we won't, in which case it'll be you, Yitzchak. Um, it's strange that Abraham says that because he knows what he's got to do. He knows there isn't going to be a set, although in a sense there was with a certain irony because there was the ram which he slaughtered in the end. Um, and also, if we're about to say, and I, I will preempt the next Rashi, now Yitzchak gets it. Now Yitzchak knows that he's going to be the korban, the sacrifice, and nevertheless, the two of them still go together. That's problematic because maybe Yitzchak thinks, well, there's a 50-50 chance. Based on what Abraham has said, maybe there'll be a ser, and let's hope so, in which case I'm all right. Uh, if not, well, okay, there's a chance that I won't be all right, but I'm prepared to take the risk. I'm prepared to roll the dice. Rather than the full um, uh, unequivocal acceptance of the din, which we normally associate with Yitzchak. It's, um, on this, the Shlaha HaKodesh says something very interesting, and I think it's actually a bit problematic. He says that Abraham is dumb. There's a tefillah that when Avram says Hashem will provide the ser, or if not, it'll be my son, he's saying, please let it be that Hashem will provide the ser. So I, it's not for me to disagree with the Shlach HaKodesh, but it would be, it's a little bit incongruous to say that at this point, Avram is davening, but he won't have to shaft his son for two reasons. One, because what I think is the theme that uh, the whole point of the Akedah is that he accepts the din, whether he understands it or not, and doesn't react against it. And number two, he hasn't taken any opportunity up till now, either in the Chumash or in Rashi, to daven that he will not have to shecht his son. So it's a little bit strange that he is doing so now, but it's also a little bit strange uh, to find another, it's a little bit hard to find another understanding of these words Rashi here. Um, and to answer the question why Abraham phrases it as a, as a, as a possibility that there'll be a set or alternative possibility that he'll have to shecht his son. So I haven't got any more explanation of that. And then it says, And even though Yitzchak now understood, despite what we just questioned a moment ago, he says Yitzchak now understood that he is going to be slaughtered, going as in journeying to the eventual destination that will result in him being slaughtered. Nevertheless, with a equal heart. So we've heard before that in the first instance, in Pasuk Vav, they were going together. Uh, and that was when Yitzchak was the reference point because Yitzchak thought he was going to just participate in, a, in a, an act of Avodah and therefore he has Ratzon and Simcha. And Abraham has the same as that. Now Yitzchak knows where he's going, but now he has the same as Abraham. Abraham, we've just established, had Ratzon and Simcha. So now we know that Yitzchak, even after his new knowledge, 
also has Rotson and Simcha, because Leib Shaveh is what me is meant by Yelchushanechem Yachdav. It means they have an equal heart. Okay, Pasuk Tet. They came to the place which Hashem had said to him. No comment of Rashi. Presumably that's still now uh, the place that was referred to originally by Hashem in Pasuk Bet, fulfilled in Pasuk Dalet. Don't know why it's repeated. Uh, Rashi doesn't uh, address that. Um, Abraham built there the Mizbeach, the altar, the Aroch et Aitzim. And he arranged the wood, the Ya'akot et Yitzchak, the no, and he bound Yitzchak his son, the Yasemoto Alamizbeach, and he put him on the altar, Mimala Itzim, above on top of the wood. Now, Rashi explains the word Ya'akot, which is good that he does, because we call this Akeda Yitzchak. And what is Akeda? What does it mean? Says Rashi, what Akeda means, the Ya'akot. It's a particular type of binding. We translate sometimes Akedat Yitzchak as the binding of Isaac, but Rashi says it's a particular type of binding. Yadav v'raglav me'acharav. His hands and feet behind him. Hayadayim v'haraglayim v'yachad. The hands and the feet together. Now, if you look at any um, painting of this act, of which there are many, um, not normally from Jewish sources, then Yitzchak is, is lying sort of on the altar and he's sort of tied up on the altar. I've never seen a picture, and I've actually looked, that shows his hands and feet tied behind him, perhaps because it doesn't look so photogenic. Um, it looks pretty ghastly. Um, but that is how you shecht a korban. Um, and the way you do it is you, you, you put the animal on the altar, you bind its tight hands and legs, and that means its throat, it means it can't move, number one, and it means its throat is available. Sorry, you're finding this too uh, unpleasant. It's all good. <laughs> okay, you're a doctor, you do these things. But this is a human. <laughs> this is a human. Well, one day you'll be making incisions into humans as well. The incisions are caving, it's his one-year-old son. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, 37, 37. Sorry. He gets, he's 43 years later. Ah, fair, uh, fair enough. So that's okay. it, it that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, how do we know this? Um, well, if we look at the who says Rashi, the who Lashen Akudim, uh, we don't actually need to go there, but when Yaakov is working for the funny colored sheep of Lavan, there's a number of different descriptions of the nature of the funny colors, um, which is why, by the way, Rashi believes, I think it's why Rashi suggests that Lavan kept changing the terms of the deal. Um, and one of the different colorations of the sheep is Akudim. And Rashi explains there, Perik Lamad, Pasuk Lamad uh, that it means sheep with different colors around their ankles. Uh, so they've got four ankles, they've got four legs, but in the human form, that would be two ankles and two wrists. And that's uh, the basis of the word akudim. So the akeda of Yitzchak is not just that he was tied up to the altar, but he was bound in this particular way, which is very much like a sacrifice. Um, I did hear uh, an answer to the famous question of, and why is it akeda Yitzchak? When we refer to it, why do we refer to Yitzchak? Why don't we refer to Avraham? Because it's Avraham's test more than Yitzchak's test. Well, it's also Yitzchak's test, and we just alluded to that. Um, I did see an answer that um, in the very act of binding Yitzchak in this particular way, and the Midrash says that Yitzchak said to his father, bind me very tightly, because otherwise I might instinctively flinch when I see the knife. 
And if I flinch and the knife goes in the wrong way, I will not be a kosher korban. I'll be a non-kosher korban. I won't be a olatamim, which is what Yitzchak turns into. So it's the very act of binding, which is Yitzchak's um, great test. It's also the case that you can say that um, Abraham's test was to bring a korban. Yitzchak's test was to become a korban, which is a different type of test. And, and we allude to that when we call it Akeda Yitzchak. Anyway, just to conclude the Rashi, um, he refers us, as we just said, to the word Akudim in the story of Yaakov and Lavan sheep. Uh, he says, In that case, by Yaakov, it referred to sheep where their ankles were white. And that's called Akudim by the sheep because that's the place by the ankles where you bind a sacrifice. There, in, those, in that uh, discoloration, that's how it was recognized. The sheep were recognized by the um, white color around the ankles in the place where they would be bound if they were bound for a korban in a form of akeda. Okay, um, that was Pasuk Tet. Pasuk Yud, on which there's no Rashi, says, Vayishlach Abraham et yado. Abraham stretched out his hand, et ma'achelet, and he took the ma'achelet, which we now know to be the knife, lishchot et bano, to slaughter his son. And then, Pasuk Yud Aleph, Vayikra elav malach Hashem min hashamayim, an angel of Hashem called to him from heaven, Vayomer Abraham, Abraham, Vayomer hineni, and he said, here I am. That, by the way, is the third and final hineni. So there are three hinenis in the story. First, Abraham says hineni to Hashem. Then Abraham says hineni to his son. And there's the tremendous tension between the two. And now Abraham says hineni to a malach. We could perhaps be medag. We could be precise. It's not Hashem. It's a representative of Hashem. Or we can say that's the same as Hashem. And now Abraham says that to Hashem. He's back to where he started. And now we carry on the dialogue with Hashem. But Rashi has something to say on the word Abraham, Abraham. Lashen chiba, who? It is an expression of love. Shakofel et shamo, that he doubles his name. We know psychologists tell us that it's nice to refer to people by name. It makes us feel good if we're given an actual name. And if you say it twice, then it's twice as good. But I think what Rashi actually is responding to is the fact that this is the second time Hashem has referred to Abraham by name. The first was in Pasuk Aleph. And then there was only one name, Abraham, but now it's doubled. So why is it doubled? What's the difference between a single name and a doubled name? So you could read Rashi as just answering that question simply. You know what? A doubled name is a Loshan Chiba. So you're wondering why there's a doubled name here. It's a Loshan Chiba. It's an expression of love. But I actually think that's something a little bit deeper. Rashi's saying, if there's love here, why wasn't there love there? Or, or that's what Rashi leads us to think, that at the beginning, there wasn't the same level of love. Hashem said, Abraham, which we now know, based on Rashi's comment in Yudalaf, is not so much love compared to Abraham, Abraham. So why is there now more love um, at this point than there was at the beginning? And the answer to that is obvious, because he has now passed the test. And the words is coming now in Pasuk Yudbet is to uh, emphasize but the test is over and Abraham has passed. And now Hashem has what he needs, as, as we will see. So now we go to the Pasuk Yudbet. Rob, Rob, can I ask again, if I may? Excuse yes, me? please. 
Um, just on Pasuk, go ahead, go, going back a Pasuk, why does it say, yep. like he, he stretched out his hand? If, did he stretch out his hand to take the knife? Because that's what you always do when you take a knife. Or if it's the other way around that he took the knife and then stretched out his hand, maybe it's, is it out of order slightly, potentially? Okay, good question. You know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say I Russia thought, exactly, I, thought... I don't have to. But, but also, um, Russia doesn't comment on this, and I don't know. Um, let's assume that the Torah is written in chronological order, and we... we especially within one pasuk, we wouldn't assume that it's not. So it sounds like he stretched out his hand to take the knife. And then he did take the knife. Um, in which case you can ask, why do we need to be told he stretched out his hand? To take the knife? Yeah. So and I, I'm more comfortable leaving myself with that problem than suggesting it's the wrong way around. Sure. Uh, if he took the knife and then stretched out his hand, why would the Torah record it the wrong way around? So sure. uh, I'll, leave, uh, I'll leave the question as, why do we need to be told he stretched out his hand? Maybe... We're, we're, you know, it, at this tremendous moment, you know, this crescendo of emotion, we're, we're analyzing it like in slow motion, motion by motion, he stretched out his hand, he takes the knife, he's about to slaughter, step one, step two, step three, that's the moment he's passed the test. We're, we're looking at it in acute detail. Okay, thank you. What happened in Yud Bet? Vayoma, he said, so that's the Malach saying, don't stretch out your hand to the lad, which, by the way, probably relates to your question, Benji. So what he's told not to do is stretch out his hand, which obviously sounds like um, substantive action and not just on his way to pick up the knife, but rather to slaughter. And don't do to him, Umar is usually translated as anything. Ki atayadati, because now I know that you are God-fearing. You fear God. And you did not hold back your son, your only son, from me. Wow. I mean, wow. Just pause for a moment because this really is the climax of the story. This is the message that, Hashem has passed, that Abraham has passed the test. First of all, Rashi has a little bit of a story. And let's see what the story is. On the words, al-tishlach, lishchot, don't stretch out your hand, meaning to slaughter. So it doesn't mean to get the knife. It doesn't mean to do anything else. It means don't slaughter. Amar Abraham said to him, to the Malach, Imkain, if so, lechinam bati lakam. I've come here for nothing. Eserbo chabala. I will do uh, with him a wound. dam. And I will bring out a little bit of blood. Amar lo, he said to him, the Malach said to Abraham, Al ta'as lo ma'uma. Don't do to him anything. Which then Rashi rephrases as, Al ta'as bo mum. Don't make in him a blemish. So let's first of all say, why does Rashi have to say this? And the reason for that, I think, and everyone seems to think, is pretty clear. There is repetition in the Pasuk. Al tishlach yadcha el hanar. So don't stretch out your hand is the same as saying don't do anything. So why does the Pasuk have to say don't stretch out your hand and don't do anything? So Rashi, as he often does, says there's half the story missing. And Rashi fills in the other half. The reason that there's two phrases from the Malach in one act of speaking, which seem to be repetitive, is because there's actually another act of speaking by Abraham in the middle of the two phrases from the Malach. So first the Malach says, Al Tishlach Yadcha, El Hanar. Then Abraham says something, 
which the Malach replies, And what can it be that needs the repetition of don't do anything? Avram, having been told he can't shecht, wants to do something, which the response is, So Sarah's distressed by this. Because uh, it's interesting the way Rashi phrases it. Why does Rabram want to do something? I've come for nothing. Now, the way God wants me to serve me, Abraham thinks until this point, is through sacrifice, even human sacrifice, ghastly though that sounds. But that's what Abraham thinks Hashem wants. He's got no um, uh, um, frame. He's got no way of understanding any other way of fulfilling Hashem's command. So therefore he feels, if I can't shecht, then I'll do a mini version of shechting. I'll at least draw some blood. He's still, his mindset is on sacrifice because he's, he thinks, all along, he's been thinking that's what he has to do. So if I can't draw some blood, lechinam bati, I've come for nothing. And then I, I, I will draw some blood. That, that will be at least something because that's the way I'm supposed to serve you. Turns out he's supposed to do something else, which he will find out in due course. Now then, uh, the next thing of Rashi is he translates, he replaces Alta Aslo Mu'umah by Alta Asbo Mum. Now, if you translate Mu'umah, as most translations do, as don't do anything, then Rashi is saying, uh, the one thing you can't do is make a blemish. However, you can also say that Rashi is translating the word Mu'umah by the word Mum, as if they're the same word. And the Aleph, Rashi says, you can read it without the Aleph. So, Two ways of seeing this Rashi. Altas Lomum is an, uh, a, an explanation of um, Altas Lomuma, or it's a translation of Altas Lomuma. Um, I'm not sure which. I've seen both in the sources. Um, and if it's the second, the word Muma and the word Mum are equivalent. The word Mum is the one well known. That's why Rashi gives it to us. The word Muma is like a, a rare form of the word mum with an extra aleph, but alephs, as they sometimes do, drop out. That's the nature of alephs. Okay, now we come to ki atayadati. Interestingly, Rashi puts this in twice. He gives two explanations for ki atayadati. Um, first, uh, we hear Abraham's own internal dialogue, and then we hear, if you like, Hashem speaking. And we need both. Uh, and let, let's look at them both together because I think we need to have, bring them together as a whole. So let's look at the first one because Rashi puts it first. Amar Rabbi Abba. So Rashi is quoting a midrash in the name of Rabbi Abba. Amar lo Abraham. Abraham said to him, I will explain before you literally my conversation with myself. Etmol amarta li. Yesterday, not literally yesterday, but in the past, you said to me, Ki In Yitzchak will be called your descendants. Yes, you've got a son called Yishmael, but the one who will bear your descendants, who will be called your descendants, that will come from Yitzchak. Now, that obviously implies that Yitzchak must live at least long enough to have children. V'chazarta, and you went back, Abraham says to Hashem, V'amarta, and you said, Kach na ed bincha. Please take your son, which is the opening start, the opening words of the command to offer him up. And now you say to me, don't stretch out your hand to the son. And although you've told me he's not going to be killed, I'm still confused. Statement three matches with statement one, but it doesn't match with statement two. 
Statement one was, Yitzhak's going to be the ancestor of your children. Statement three is, don't kill him. Okay, I get that. Now I don't kill him. He is going to be the ancestor to my children. But what about statement two, which was, take your son and offer him up? To which, Amar lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Hashem said to him, Lo achalel briti umotzai sepatai lo eshaner, posuk from Tehillim, I will not profane my covenant. What comes out of my mouth, I will not change. In other words, I am being consistent. You might think I'm not consistent. You've got a problem with statement two, but I'll show you how it is consistent. When I said to you, take, quoting again the same passage from Tehillim, what comes out of my mouth, I will not, uh, my lips, I will not change. I didn't say to you, slaughter him, but rather bring him up. You have brought him up. Take him down again. Okay. End of story about Abraham and Hashem and what Hashem says to Abraham. Why do we need this story? And why is this in Kiatayadati? Now I know. Now, now I know means, now I know means you passed the test. Now, in a minute, we'll talk about what does it mean Abraham Hashem now knows? Did he not know before? Uh, Hashem is omniscient. So why does he now know what he didn't know before? So that's obviously a question behind this, and it's going to be answered in the next Rashi. But why do we need this story about what's in Abraham's head and the Hashem's response? So I will say again, and this is pretty much the last time I will say this, that this is the test. This is the test that Abraham has passed, according to Rashi. Uh, there's no question that we cannot imagine the emotion of being told to sacrifice your son. And we're not pushing that aside, but it's not on what Rashi focuses. Rashi focuses, and I think this is the clearest example, but I count three other references or allusions to this idea that it's Abraham's intellectual problem, his lack of understanding that is the real test. And, and this proves it absolutely. And, and it's absolutely clear, and it's explicit, it's in black and white in Rashi, that Abraham did have these doubts. We saw it on the word ko, uh, and in, in Pasuk hey, but now we see it absolutely explicitly. Abraham says, I couldn't understand what was going on. My whole life has been devoted to hearing your messages and acting upon them, and you gave me three messages, and they just didn't make sense. But here's the key. At what point does Abraham verbalize these doubts? After the test is over. And that, uh, I think that uh, it comes from, uh, that, that point was made by Rav Chaim Gris, but I'm sure it might have been made by others. That's how we respond to tests. Not to swallow your doubts. Not to say, oh, there's no doubt. Not to say, oh, my question must be a silly question. Abraham doesn't say my question was a silly question. I have this incredibly profound question but I went ahead and did it nevertheless. And that's when Hashem says, Ki yadati. And I've just got time for the next Atayadati, which Rashi says, Now I, Hashem, have what to answer to the Satan and to the nations who wonder, What is my love for you? Why is Abraham special? And this is not quite, I mentioned this point when we learned Pasuk Aleph, it's not quite match up to the two things which Abraham, sorry, the Pasuk, Rashi said triggered the Akedah. One was the conversation with the Satan. Actually, that works, big tick. 
Uh, the other was the conversation with Yishmael. That doesn't quite work perfectly, but it almost works because he says the umat, the nations. So in Pasuk Aleph, uh, Rashi told us that uh, the Satan was saying, what's the big deal about Abraham? And Yishmael was saying, what's the big deal about Yitzchak? And now Hashem says, I have enough to answer the Satan. So the, the question that the Satan raised, which is really sort of the existential question, um, what is so special about Abraham? That the, the you know, logic is asking that. And the other is asked by the other nations who say, why do the Jews get this special relationship with Hashem? Now, what Hashem, what Abraham, sorry, what Rashi is not explaining Atayadati as is now I know, because that can never make sense. Because of course Hashem knows, because Hashem always knows. Hashem doesn't need to come to a point where he now knows as if he didn't before. That doesn't make sense. So Rashi reads Atayadati as now I can make known to others. Not quite the literal meaning of Yadati, but it's the way it has to be understood. Now I can make known to the Satan and to the Umat, to the other nations who are asking, what's the big deal with Abraham? Why does he get the special treatment? Says Rashi, in the words of Hashem, Yeshli pitchon per achshav. Now I have a, literally an opening of the mouth, a, a response, shara'im, because they see ki yare elokim atah, because you, Abraham, are God-fearing. So we will stop there.